Hi, I'm novelist and critic Kim Newman. And I'm writer and editor Stephen Jones. And we're here to do a commentary on this episode of Night Gallery. You're well into the second season now. You've probably got a measure of, of how the show is going. Um, tonight's episode features two, I would say, outstanding, top-of-the-line uh, Night Gallery episodes uh, and one really terrible one that doesn't <laughs> actually take up any time at all. Uh, but, uh, we have a nice... Uh, selection of guest stars i always like the uh 1970s american tv tonight's guest star format showing you them so you recognize their names and, and faces as opposed to the way television and again as i've now. said before the the casting on this show is amazing that they uh, yeah uh, no the, they they came from you know they a lot of film actors have now moved into this but mm -hmm. they also they cast actors who had connections with the with the genre mm. in, in in films as well and i think that's quite a clever move mm -hmm. um and we're going to see that again tonight in, in, in both these episodes, mm. actually. Uh, that you, Somebody knew what they were doing when they were casting these episodes. They're not just, you know, like the love boat, you know, the, the guest yeah. star of the week mm. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, some thought has gone into it. Um, yeah, this one was, sh this was first shown on NBC TV on December 8th, 1971. Um, so it's coming at the end of the year. And I, again, I, I, I remember as a kid seeing this and going, what? They've done a story by H.P. Lovecraft? Yeah. I mean, uh, is done, this the first TV Lovecraft? They've done Pickman's Model, I think. In the same season, yes. Pickman's same Model. season, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, at that time, although um, Die, Monster, Die and the Dunwich Horror had been filmed, there was a sort of feeling that Lovecraft was difficult yeah, for visual very media, much. Um, and they would take his ideas, but not his stories. Oh, and of course, the haunted palace, the haunted as palace, well, which is not even credited to him. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, of course, every single Lovecraft story has been filmed multiple times, including like, this you, one. You can find half a dozen versions of this. Yeah. Uh, but actually, Rod Serling, who everybody remembers how great Rod Serling was as a writer of original material. I think this episode shows how great he was adapting other people's material. Oh, absolutely. Because he takes a story that even Lovecraft admitted it's just a plagiarism of Edgar Allan Poe's uh, The Facts in the Case of Monsieur Valdemar. It, Lovecraft thought of it as a complete throwaway. Well, also, and to be Serling, fair, that was Lovecraft's second favourite Poe story after that Fall of yeah. House of Usher. So he was a fan of the story mm. and obviously wanted to have a, his own go at yeah. it. Um, and of course, in that story, it's hypnotism that yes, keeps the guy yeah. alive, as opposed to some mysterious well, scientific. I, again, I, I think that, I think of this as one of Lovecraft's science fiction stories, as yeah. opposed to one of his horror stories. And again, which is probably why it got re it got rejected from Weird Tales when he when he submitted it back in mm. the day, because it was possibly too science fiction for for Weird Tales. Because he wrote it in mm. March 1926 when he was staying in New York and he hated his, his time in New York, which is why it's quite a miserable story. Yeah. Um, uh, and it got rejected by Weird Tales and was finally published in a magazine called Tales of Magic and Mystery uh, in March 1928, which is, you know, almost forgotten pulp magazine mm. now. So it's a pretty, even back then, even back at this point, <laughs> if you didn't have the collections, it was a mm. very obscure story by Lovecraft. And so it's kind of interesting that they picked it to do. They saw something in it, I think. Yeah. Uh, and yet what Serling does with it is transformative. Absolutely. He takes a horror story and turns it into a love story. And that makes it more horrifying. In, in the end. A, another really simple change in the, the story. The character of the landlady 
is one of Lovecraft's most embarrassing racist caricatures of a, a Hispanic woman, complete with terrible accent. Now, Beatrice Kay, who's one of those actresses, she's so astonishingly memorable. You tend to get her mixed up with uh, a few other actresses who, who waste her. She's the one who was in Sam Fuller's Underworld USA. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, she's not the, the woman from Throw Mama from a Train, who you get her mixed up with. But she's uh, also basically a singer, isn't she? So, she's yeah, not even really right. an actress. But she was a nightclub singer. She's sort of weirdly grotesque and strange in this. She's a caricature, like the character in the in the story, but she feels real. She feels like Texas. And the contrast between her and Barbara Rush is really strong. But also, yeah. I mean, let's, let's face it. I mean, there, there is no female protagonist in the Lovecraft story because no. Lovecraft would be able to write a woman protagonist yes, in his life right. depending yeah, on it. Yeah. So the, it's, the, an, it's an unnamed male narrator in the, the story. The only uh, significant woman in Lovecraft's work turns out to be a man possessing a woman, <laughs> doesn't he? Yeah. So basically, yeah. that's the genius, I think, of Sterling's yeah. script is, is to bring in this female narrator for the audience to follow all the way through even from that opening narration which is mm. fabulous it's, it's, yeah. it's a kind and of it, Rebecca opening and it's narration I mean the uh, Barbara Rush is a really solid actress but when she's doing her opening narration she makes herself sound older older yes and at the end as well yeah there's a little croak there there's a little sort of nostalgic look back but I don't think she's um, ever looked better than she looks in this no. in this episode yeah. actually I mean she's a 50s actress from When Worlds Collide it came from Outer yeah. Space and she went on to have a, t- a career in TV in the 70s. She's in Moon of the Wolf, mm. um, I think, around about the same time as this. Yeah. But in, I think she looks fabulous in this. And it's really her story. Yeah. It's not, it's not yeah. I, unlike Lovecraft, uh, the Lovecraft original story, mm. it's not about Dr. Munoz, it's about her character. Yeah. The, um, the director is, is Jean Swark, who I think is the most prolific director of Night Galleries. He'd done stuff before, but obviously Night Gallery gave opportunities to directors that maybe directing you know regular cop shows or sitcoms were not giving him and so you can have a sense of him cutting loose of doing really strange interesting things but one of his i mean obviously we remember him for bug and jaws 2 but he also well, we remember for william castle's bug i'm not sure who remember yeah, jaws 2 but <laughs> and, and supergirl of course but he also directed the film of richard matheson's bedtime return somewhere in somewhere time, in time which is film. one of the most romantic yes. movies ever made and i get the sense that in embryo here it's again a story of an impossible doomed love that Set in, t- around about the same time, yeah, actually. In, is somewhere in yeah, time. that's right. But in 25 minutes, it gives you... And it's credit to Bubba Rush, also to Henry Darrow. Well, Henry Darrow is one of those actors that was in everything, yeah. obviously. I mean, you know, one of those guys... I mean, I first knew him from The High Chaparral and yeah, then from Harry yeah. O, which, of course, yeah. we grew up with as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and again, he's, he doesn't have a lot of genre credits normally. He's in Curse of the Undead, but mm. you'd never know it because he's yeah. a really young actor in that. Yeah. But again, he's, I mean, I, there's been many other actors play this role over the years, and I've seen various versions mm. and radio shows of this. He is terrific in this. And a thing that you mentioned in the um, the commentary we, we um, did for A Question of Fear, where at the beginning Fritz Weaver is, is wearing fake white hair. Here, the fact you look at Henry Darrow and, and think, 
is that too much makeup to to do it? But no, of course he's preserved. Yes. Yeah. He's not supposed to look like a real person. And he doesn't move like a real person. Yeah. The way he sits down, everything about him is slightly stiff, slightly fake, and it's an interesting thing he brings mm. to the brings to the role. I mean, I think also the thing with Barbara Rush's character is that she's naive. She's mm. a naive, lovesick little girl, really. Yeah. And and I think that gives her her weakness and, and basically is, is one of the great tragedies mm. of this. You and know? I think he's really good at doing yeah, sophisticated older guy charm. Yeah, you can well, he's see. always very charming. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's always a charming actor. A, for, for somebody who's, who's dead... He's not actually creepy or smarmy in a way that this role... I think, actually, um, one of the absolutely underrated things about Night Gallery is the use of underscore. And here, Robert Bain provides a, a just a Spanish guitar score, yes. which completely goes against the mood you'd expect from a Lovecraft story. It's all about the emotion. It's all about the heart. And supporting the character. Yeah. Um, it's, it's great on, on this one. And, and uh, I know that... A, it's something that um, it's a reach for episodic television to get an original score. It's so much easier to recycle the, the library cues you've got, which is what Night Gallery did a lot. Which, yeah, but for for a reason, I don't know if it's because this was one of the ones that had Serling's personal imprimatur on it, or somebody just thought, you know what, Spanish guitar that would really work for this. They pushed the boat out, and of course, the thing is. By delivering of such a distinctive score, it's not one you can then reuse on the next week's episode. Whereas some of the spookier scores I were much they could use, you know, reuse easier the Western, to repurpose. Western yes, I, I wonder if he stuff. does turn up on, in, in anything else because it's so Or maybe good. It came from one of those. <laughs> or that's also possible. That it's, it, yeah, but even again, yeah. look at the set direction on this. Yeah. It's, it's probably Joe Alves again. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, the clutter. The, that, mm. that, that, I, mean, yeah. I, I know that it's all in the universal wardrobe uh, uh, stock department yeah and prop department but he's pulled it all out you know yeah. everything there even yeah. down to the statues on the fire the sense of there. the man who has to live in one room, room. And, yeah. he's, and he's surrounded by everything yeah. he loves and that's what he's, he talks about and all and somebody at some point must have said what yeah what did like a 1920s refrigeration unit look like and i don't know but that it's quite convincing it's a, uh, yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's a bit steam powered and yeah, uh, whatever, but yeah, it's, it's actually uh, kind of interesting. Yeah, and, and it does. Yeah, it, it's the thing that's keeping him alive. You do wonder why he hasn't moved to the North Pole, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of like I, I think. Well, yeah, the one flaw with this is he set him up. For, he set himself up for failure. Yeah, and but that's, that's a flaw of the story. That's as essentially well. Lovecraft's story, isn't yeah. it? And, and but Lovecraft is all about people who have sealed themselves into horrible traps, and actually. Uh, I, I think although Dr. Munoz in uh, Lovecraft's story isn't one of his outrageous racial caricatures, it's plainly a disapproving depiction of a Hispanic character. Whereas by casting Henry Darrow, you don't get that. You get someone who actually has an ethnic identity, but he's not a stereotype. He's charming. He's absolutely yeah. charming throughout the whole yeah. thing. Even... Towards the end, he tries to protect her and look after her, and it's it's he's not the bogeyman scientist, which mm. would be the normal thing. And I, to be honest, I I find that in the original story as well. Mm. I think that's why one of the reasons this story has been um, readapted over and over again is because it it, it has that nuance which a mm. lot of Lovecraft fiction doesn't have. Mm. It may not have been you know one of his favourite stories, but it actually shows mm. how good a writer Lovecraft could be if he put his mind to it. Although Again, this is 
often regarded as a throwaway story, yeah, one of the I, lesser stories. It, I suppose it's because it is a, a Poe pastiche. If it has any content, it's to do with hating New York, isn't it? Is, uh, yeah, I, uh, he hated New York. He really yeah. did not have a good time there. He couldn't yeah. wait to get back to Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I think what's kind of nice yeah. about this is you've got i mean that that shot there which was an edit in there but yeah. it's kind of you know that really nice camera work moving yeah. around these these objects do art it it shows and on episodic television this is an arse yes this is not stuff that you would easily do if get you just wanted to, to get it out of the way and i want to think one of the things that that serling has added is the is making Munoz, a man out of time, but a cultured, literate, civilized gentleman, and that's H.P. Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. It's like he's added elements of of you know the 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 man Lovecraft really ought to have been, and somehow was. terribly wasn't. <laughs> yeah, um, the 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 notion of the finer things, the the, the higher life, the of being a gentleman but in horribly straightened reduced circumstances <laughs> and doomed to fall apart essentially that's what happens that to hp lovecraft, lovecraft. Yeah, and at this point was rod serling aware of that because i think lovecraft was still he was beginning to pick up a reputation as a writer um all his um work not just arkham house but it was like republished in mass market paperback only in the late 60s only yeah. only when people, um, like you know, but, don Wolheim was bringing back into print but finally. he personally wasn't well known now we know yeah all kinds of stuff about lovecraft including some stuff we'd rather we didn't, <laughs> we know. didn't know yeah yeah um but at that time he would have seemed rather uh, an obscure, very obscure character. As I say, that's why I got quite excited when I saw the they must when I was a kid. Uh, certainly, if not Serling, um, the Night Gallery office must have had dealings with August Derleth, who knew Lovecraft. Oh, but, oh, um, quite possibly pushed Lovecraft because yeah. Derleth was not not averse to pushing as much as he could have. Mm. His other Arkham House writers, some of whom do turn up in Night Gallery and yeah. other shows, because as I say, you know, I've said before, Derleth. And Arkham House were always running out of money, and he needed to make as much money as he could <laughs> to put, to keep the publishing industry, his, his little publishing industry, mm. going. So the idea of selling as many stories, mm. his own stories, and other and other clients' stories to a TV mm. show, that would be a saving grace for him at this and time. And probably putting, uh, you know, having Lovecraft adaptations on this show would have made Lovecraft a more prominent writer. People have gone out and found the paperbacks yeah. and the anthologies um, and whatever. Yeah. One of the things I think is I've got somewhere a really nice anthology that was done, I think, in the maybe the 80s or even the, the 90s, which is all the source stories for The Twilight Zone. Yeah. No one's ever done one of those for Night Gallery. Which as far I think as I know, we, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Or there may well be one out there, but if, the, if so, it's probably unauthorised. It would be nice to have a collection of all the source stories. You'd have to have two, uh, I think you'd have to have two volumes yeah, at least. I admit, it's, it's a lot. I've got almost all of them somewhere in but it would be yeah and i i actually like dr munoz live in a house with lots and lots of books and that's it it would take me a couple of years to find all these stories even the ones that are in my house um it would be nice to have them all in a book together right i i know at one point carol serling was was putting together a collection there are two volumes of night gallery stories yes yeah, i have those the, the in paperback yeah and... but the, those are the uh, serling novelizing his own scripts yeah um, it, 
it would be nice to have those, but also with, with all the original source stories. stories. Some of which are quite obscure. Some of which, I mean, Cool Air obviously is it has been reprinted many times. It's a now a famous story. But it wasn't um, back here. Right? Yeah. This was, and it was, what, 70, this is 71. So the Dunwich Horror had only just come out the year before from American International <laughs> Pictures. Um, it's a shuttered room, which you'd never even know was a Lovecraft movie. It was 68. Yeah. Then you go back to 64 for The Haunted Palace. So it's not like he was prolific at this mm. point. And the idea of doing two stories in one season, I think is kind of mm. interesting. That, you know, there was something in the air at this time. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and it, it's mostly college kids. It was, yeah. it was college oh, kids who discovered Lovecraft and Tolkien and Robert E. Howard around and this point. And although we we're obviously crediting Serling for this episode, I have to say that um, Jack Laird's production of Dark Intruder is clearly made he with knew, an awareness of Lovecraft's is. work. Clark Ashton Smith, I think it yeah. drops a couple of Lovecraft entity names in there somewhere. Or it certainly uses concepts from yeah. what Dirl has called the Cthulhu mythos. And then the whole Sumerian demon, demon thing, that's all, yeah. that's all coming from, from Clark Ashton Smith's Book of Edelon and things. Yeah. There's there's enough touches that Jack Laird was obviously an avid reader and knew about. Yeah. Like Milton Sabotsky was here yeah. for Amicus, who, mm. who you know, read everything mm. um, and, and knew all these short stories. And that's one of the strengths of this series. Um, whereas, of course, with Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock, they tended to rely on those writers writing either new stories mm. or adapting their own old stories. Yeah, I think um, at, at some point Hitchcock obviously lucked into Roald Dahl. Um, but also, I think, there, I mean, it's still going, there was an Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine and all those. Oh. I mean, with Hitchcock, it's a guy called Robert Arthur, we have to credit, uh, who wrote the Three Investigators stories, uh, but was also a big radio horror writer. And he was the actual anthologist. Yeah who uh, put together all those Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcock, Hitchcock stories. Them, yeah. um, well, they were going long after Hitchcock yeah, died. That's well. right. Yeah. So, but, but, that would have been a little bit yeah, difficult. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and, and I think the other thing you've got to look at here is the... Although there's lots of other stuff going on here, the structure is still Lovecraft's on this. Yes. And, yeah, you know, it is yeah. a short story, mm. um, and, and it plays like a short... And I think that's another one, the strength of Night Gallery. Um, sometimes you, you look at Twilight Zones and they adapted novels mm. and cut them down. Whereas these are obviously, it's an anthology series that is a, a proper, and mm. of course later on in syndication they chopped these up into yeah. half hour episodes yeah. and, and whatever and they still worked um, in that format because yeah. they're like mini little feature when films. They were, uh, certainly when they were shown on my ITV region in Britain they cut the episodes up and just showed individual stories. Yeah. They 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 were they, they basically yeah. they, it was it was like throwing a pack of cards up in the yeah. air and you just sometimes you'd have the wrong credits at the end yeah, of that's of, right of, of, yeah, of the episode. Yeah, so yeah. what I never saw that one yeah um, apparently this look was uh, Henry Darrow's tribute to his um, acting teacher uh, Juano Hernandez who uh, wears something very similar in a movie called uh, Intruder in the Dusk. Okay. Um, it's very striking. I think it's also yeah. a piece of artwork by Harry Furman in Weird Tales that has the yes, same look I, as well yeah, back in the yeah. 40s when they yeah. finally did get around to reprinting this yeah. story. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. I mean, I, I don't think... I mean, look, to me, it looked like he was wearing a onesie. Like, yeah, it does a bit. <laughs> like now, a furry onesie yeah. now. Uh, Whereas I think in the in the Furman illustration, he's wearing bandages yeah. like um, The Invisible Man. And mm. so he's... he's yeah. And there's like little spots of rot coming through which i think would yeah. be a lot more interesting to be honest but uh, again you know i mean the, the director knows where to put the camera on this yeah. there's some really moody <laughs> yeah. stuff going on 
But uh, I'm when Night Gallery was first aired in Britain, I think I was just starting to. I mean, as a long-time reader, I knew the names of writers on on TV mm. shows. I was just starting starting to notice the names of directors as well, and I remember noticing that Zwart's Night Galleries had something that some of the others didn't. Um, and then noticing some of his other uh, TV work, and and he did go on to have. I, I, he's one of those people who had a feature career and then went back to TV. He directed a whole bunch of Fringe. I think, recently. I think after Santa yeah. Claus, the movie, he yeah. went back to TV. That, to oh yeah, honest. I do remember that. Yeah, uh, yeah, we were both at the um, at the press show of Santa Claus, the movie that. Um, uh, Obviously, the Salkins hoped would be a Christmas favourite that would be repeated for the rest of time. I think it was on last Christmas, but uh, yeah, no, that was... Uh, and actually, uh, there's been a bit of a um, an a, a attempt to uh, recuperate the reputation of his Supergirl, which actually has a Lovecraftian theme now, I come to think really, of it. Right, yes, it does yeah, have more stuff um, I mentioned, doesn't and, it? Helen Slater is actually brilliant in it, but the film as a whole doesn't work. Um, I think I think he's 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 more comfortable as a TV director yeah. and, I, or a TV movie. I think director. his his best feature by a long way is Somewhere in Time, which is one of those things that uh, it's no comfort to anybody who made it, but. The fact that it was a flop when it came out and then became a much-loved film that everybody who's ever seen says is brilliant, probably too late to help anybody's career, but it is now established. He still, he still a, has a solid career and yeah. he's still working, so yeah. as far as uh, I know. So I think, you know, yeah. he, he's, he's still... He's, he's very good at what he does. Um, and uh, I, I think, as you said earlier, Night Gallery gave him a chance to do what he wanted to do in a way that yeah. he, he could do it quite happily he's, without interference. Uh, um, as of uh, 2019, he's still directing episodes of Grey's Anatomy. Well, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, There's worse ways to make a living. That's right. It's still out there. Yeah. Uh, and this is a nice touch. You know, the, you know, this is how ice was delivered yeah. back then in the yeah. 1920s. I wonder if the, that's the reason why they've not updated the story, is they need... The Iceman as, as part of it. Also, maybe the refrigeration unit. <laughs> but because it's about uh, a New York City blackout, which is a, you know, was a recent news item. Uh, the, if you remember, the pilot of Night Gallery is about yes. a New York City blackout. So they could easily have updated it to be set during that. Um, but they've gone with Lovecraft's original period, which... Is still not often done in adaptations. No, of and I think that's one of the nice things about all the night guys. A lot of yeah. the night guys is, and you know, we've said this on other commentaries, it's the fact they did they did go for the period episodes now mm. and again, um, and they obviously cost more because it's the costumes and the sets and whatever. Even though Universal have all this stuff, but it's it that it's not mm. as easy to do as just doing a contemporary story, yeah. for example. And you know, they could easily have updated this to take place during the the famous New York blackout of the late sixties. Um, and there are there yeah. have been modern versions of of, yeah. of this done over yeah. the years as well, um, and quite successfully that of updating this story because it is it's one of those stories because it's a science fictiony story, it can work mm. in, in more modern times as well. 
And you could argue that we're now much more dependent on the power being on all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, yeah. I do like the fact that the, this guy dies because the mechanic downstairs can't be bothered. <laughs> yeah, it's oh. like he, he's a genius scientist, but he depends on the working stiff who, who, who's more interested or, in clocking on at the garage. if your life's depending on it, have a spare in a drawer <laughs> yeah, yeah, that you could well. just like put on, you know, in case something happens well, to it. We've all got spare batteries in our drawers or yeah. spare light bulbs. For goodness sake, if your life depends on it, get spare whatever it is, the knob or whatever it is. Missing. Yeah, well, I, I think probably like, like H.P. Lovecraft was a rather impractical man in his own life and he assumed that all his uh, genius characters would be above such fripperies. Of, but did you know the guy who, who the guy downstairs who refused to do yeah. it? Actually, that guy, is, that guy, the actor, is, is Larry J. Blake. And he's the father of Michael F. Blake, who wrote uh, three books about Lon Chaney oh, Senior. Good grief! I have um, those. I can see them on my shelves. Yeah, from, from exactly. This point. We can see them yeah. from where we're sitting. Yeah. Um, and he was a Universal character actor. He rarely yeah. got credited, but his little cameo earlier on, I thought, was actually yeah, quite a neat little cameo. And it, because, and I think Serling's great at this escalation of frustration, isn't it? With, yeah, all the 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 chances she's got to save him. Uh, and it's just ordinary people doing ordinary stupid things, but uh, you know, it's building up to this guy dying, <laughs> yeah, or in fact, he's dying again, dead. yeah, he's dying again, yeah. Um, uh, and I mean, and, and again, I think the the problem with this is that the end is the tail that wags the story. Mm. Is like you know, basically, we all know what's going to happen. He's yeah. really he's really told us what's going to happen, yeah. and what we have to see has got to be amazing but of course it's network tv yeah so I what you also see think is it's a slight problem that it's a, an unrecognizable gruesome dummy so we lose our emotional connection with darrow as Munoz. yeah and in the story he actually becomes liquefied it's yeah. like a liquefied yeah. corpse not a not a but again i like the, this mm. this top and tailing you know the, yeah. so, as i say the sort of rebecca it's a, Mandalay it's a shame that thing. his name is misspelled on his gravestone <laughs> um but uh uh, but we're having there's another instance of yes that in coming up in, 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 <laughs> yeah. later in this episode yeah, um, yeah somebody, somebody wasn't paying attention to the spelling there but. yeah uh, and that I mean I think I think that's kind of hokey but uh, you know it, it's still effective and I think the weird camera move sort of sells it uh, POV shot is, yeah. is, is, is kind of interesting and yeah. as you say it's now in the few it's now contemporary and uh, yeah. she's got that um, that weird croaky voice I like yeah. it no it's good yeah. it's, it's and good I'm, adaptation yeah and it works better than having her come in with yeah a ridiculous grey wig and, and yeah uh, yeah exactly with powdered hair yeah and here we are back to, to Rod in the in the gallery. And I love these little segments. I love the idea of the night gallery. I have to say, I think the two two pictures this week, they seem a bit generic to me. Um, I think that the, the cool air one kind of reflects the story. This one, not so much. I think it's meant to be the laughing ghouls at the end. So I think it, I think it was done with that in mind. But it um, doesn't have the feel that the story has. Well, Camera um, Obscura is an interesting little story yeah. anyway, um, and it's now basically a classic. So um, do you want to talk, because I, I, you were a great friend of Andy. Are you the literary executor of Basil kind, I'm not actually literary executor, but I kind of look after his estate still. Yeah. 
So I knew Basil for many, many years. And again, this is one of his high spots. That This story was one of those stories that was originally published in the Pan Book of Horror Stories. Is it an original to Pan? It is. Yeah, it was right. his third published story. It was published in the sixth mm. Pan Book of Horror Stories back in 1965, edited by Herbert Van Thau. Again, I'm not sure that whoever it was on this show, whether it was... Uh, 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 what's his name? Um, uh, Herb Wright or mm -hmm. one of the other guys actually found it in there. I think it might. They might have found it in one of the Alfred Hitchcock um, and hardcover anthologies. Mm -hmm. But when you think that this was Basil's third, he was a newspaper man, and he started writing uh, short stories, and he sold started selling them to Pampago Horror Stories in the mid '60s. So his third story <laughs> sold to American television, and he was incredibly proud of that. Mm. In fact, while I was sitting here, I actually have his original contract here, dated <laughs> September the... Uh, what is that? September the 2nd, I think it is, 1970... <laughs> uh, sorry, 24th. September 24th, 1971, from Universal Television. And it's, it's a one-page contract, which apparently <laughs> is what they used to do in those days. Um, but he got paid $1,000 for them to mm -hmm. use this story, which was a huge amount. In, in those days, he probably got paid £100 to sell a novel, mm. yeah. to write a novel. So $1,000 would, would be... I mean, it, it's through an agency, Scott Meredith Agency. Yeah. And so again... So how I'm, much of that we, do we reckon Herbert Van Thal... Um, it's interesting you know, how, how much actually he made at the end yeah. of the day. But he was he was very proud of, of this adaptation. So proud, in fact, that he got, a, he, he got a friend of his to take some photos of it off the TV... Um, when it was shown in England and created a sort of um, montage in a, in a frame and had it hanging in his, his study in his workplace for, for the last 30 years, um, which is now hanging in my house. Um, but it's, it was, it's a very close adaptation of the story. And I think this is... This it's is another what Serling Gallery... adaptation. Yes, it's, yeah, a, yeah. It's, it's a really, really good adaptation because basically, like some of the other ones, it says... There's nothing basically wrong with this. We yeah. can, we can just yeah. we can just turn this into television. We just and point we the camera. know from what Serling did with Cool Air, there wasn't just laziness. If Serling needed to make changes and adaptions to everything, he would do it. But he recognised this, and I have to say, I think that this plays better um, on television than it reads. That because. It uses so much of the original story that it, um, I, again, um, as we said, there, the story has the thing of having to change viewpoint in the last paragraph, which the TV show doesn't have to do. Also, the fact that Basil wrote the two characters as kind of caricatures sort of works because we got two actors here who are perfect at playing. Well, Ross Martin, of course, who uh, who's basically the stars Mr. Jingold loved dressing up in, in wigs yeah. and moustaches and whatever. We, I mean, obviously he had, he had just come off the wild, wild west. Yeah. Uh, a few seasons of that. Um, and he also went on and he worked with, uh, uh Jack Laird on the, on the return of Charlie Chan mm. as well. I, I, I liked him. I think it was yeah. a very sympathetic I wonder, actor. Do you think that here he's doing Boris Karloff? He well, he's doing Boris so Karloff from the night key. He looks so much like late Karloff. Um, I, I, there is a, um, a kind of minority report on, uh, on Martin's performance in this is saying, wouldn't it have been easier to get an old British actor rather than a young American actor who, brilliant as he is, and he's doing a really good British accent, much better than most uh, American actors can do. But 
frankly, there are plenty of yeah. Wilfred Hyde White could have just come in and done this without. He, he was without off doing three, those other TV movies without with three, Dan at without three days of makeup. You know, um, I, I think Ross Martin genuinely liked doing this. I mean, you yeah, know, I no, mean, in, in, and as Artemis Gordon in the Wild Wild West, he's always in makeup. And, yeah, and, and you know, like that Sherlock Holmesian type thing. It's yeah, like, he you know, is doing that, and I think um, Aubergine who has, has actually changed his appearance quite a lot for this, and and also was an actor who seemed to like i suppose dickensian caricature as a as a mode uh, even when he was working with you know robert altman you know he has that sort of feel of not being quite a human being and being a I, well of course sense. and he, he's, he's most famous for playing odo in star trek deep space yeah. nine for several seasons but he, he's like ross martin he's he's one of those ca- character actors you would go to to guest star in pretty much anything yeah. they were both very hard-working actors yeah. i mean ross martin died of a heart attack at the age of 61 i think that's because he worked so hard <laughs> and and renee aubergine said uh, i'm never going to retire i'll die with my boots on and in yeah. fact he did yeah. um uh, so that these were both hard-working character actors who have a rare chance here to play off against each mm. other and they do it remarkably well and again it comes down to that precise casting on night gallery at this point um, and the idea, I mean, and let's just say, you know, get this out there. A camera obscura is a real thing. Mm. It does exist. It's not a made up fantasy thing. It's, it's a, a pinpoint of light, which projects a, a scene down onto a tabletop. Um, I assumed that Basil got the idea from the Powell and Pressburger movie, A Matter of Life and Death. Where Maybe. Roger Livesey has a camera obscura yes. and it's a big thing. It's like, there are there's one in Bristol, um, and I think there are one or two others in in Britain. But certainly, a matter of life and death was where I remember it from. Well, as I said, um, he was also a journalist, so he may have come across it as a journalist at some point. In, yeah, in, but in West in Sussex, fact, thinking about it, Roger Livesey would have been great, mm. <laughs> and and to the extent that. Now I come to think of it, Basil would may well have been thinking of Roger Livesey <laughs> while he was writing the story. Um, well, I, th- I think I think we have to, to to own up to the fact that Basil was pretty much an old-fashioned storyteller. Oh yeah, no, that he, um, he is very much of the the clubman persuasion, and he as uh, uh, we as we both know, he was in life very much a clubbable gent of yes, the old and school. Yes, a gentleman of the old school. Uh, but you really do feel here. I mean, I, there is a slight problem nowadays looking, you know, at, at this character, um, uh, you know, of the money lender. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, looking at Shasted, that basically it is a bit too much, possibly, of a caricature uh, of a certain race. Yeah. Uh, well, Rod Serling, of course, was very, very aware of anti-Semitism and any tinge of that's in the story. And I do think it's arguable in the story. I think that's been removed in that Aubergine is not playing the character as Jewish. Um, He's playing the character as sort of prissy and fussy and and cruel. It's much more... It reminds me of some of the EC uh, villains or the, the villains of Amicus movies the oh very much the, the smug the, yeah the smug yeah, guy yeah the, the young guy it's quite like the relationship in the the poetic justice episode of tales from the crypt yeah. between the the callous young guy and peter cushing as the nice old tramp although there's a glint of malice in mr gingold who seems to be taking a delight in punishing people that and okay 
Sharstead is depicted as an unpleasant person, but he lent the money. He is he, he is, yeah, he is provided again, a service. I think Jingo yeah. gives Jingo gives him enough outs, and he, he doesn't. Not, take yeah, them. that's right. Yeah, and and uh, and he and basically every time he has a chat with him, he he gives him another chance to make it right. Mm. And and some you know he's and he's so arrogant, Sharstead, that he just keeps turning it down until the point he realizes he's walked into a trap, yeah. and then by then it's too late. Yeah. Um, um, but you're quite right. I mean, you should repay the money. Yeah, that's it was right. a genuine yeah. loan. Yeah, that's right. He's rich. I mean, <laughs> presumably he's got all these lovely things. Presumably he has borrowed the money and just put it in a drawer somewhere. Invested it. I very good returns yeah. by the looks of things. Um, and there is a sort of uh, yeah, you know, there's a class angle to this, isn't it? And, oh, and very it's much very so. much the um, what what is wrong with Sharstead is that he is uh, uh, an uppity lower middle class guy dunning the rich He thinks guy. of himself above his station, really. Yeah. Um, um, and he's being slapped down for that. I but think, this is, I love this little yeah. scene here where he suddenly realises that he's, he's misread the entire situation. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and now, basically, the trap is closing on him. Jingold is actually going to, and you know, the door shutting, the being taken up to another level. It's actually kind of interesting. I mean, it's never explained what the hell's going on here yes, anyway, no. really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even the story doesn't explain no, no, it. It's yeah, just something it, it, that happens. Yeah. Uh, it is, it's a model of story that I associate with EC Horror Comics or Robert Block. It's where the, there's a protagonist who is awful and then something ironically terrible happens to them. But here... Because you've got the character of Gingold, who is, the, you know, he's representing the author. He's representing, you know, he's a, 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 a like a, a, a sinister version of the angel in It's a Wonderful Life or the inspector in An Inspector Calls. You know, he is a supernatural figure who is inflicting justice on yes. the world. Really, you know, yeah, he's out for in revenge. a slightly suspect manner. There's a, there's a, uh, I think that that adds a creepiness to it. And um, that uh, set of steps is featured very prominently in the pilot. It's, it's an art gallery in what South I, America. What I love that. about the, yeah. the end of, of, of this episode yeah. is you get a really good view of, of the, the the European village. Yeah, that's right. Here it is, Frankenstein's yeah, art. That's right. It's the, um, the idea that hell is Universal Studios' standing European horror movie set. Well, not anymore, unfortunately. Sadly, but back in the yeah. day, but it, there it, was. it, it there, was still there since it Frankenstein was and Dracula. the... the uh, originally built for All Quiet on the Western Front, but seen in every single Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman. Yeah, I mean, as, yeah, movie, as I said on other conferences, yeah. I, I actually went out there and did the tour back at this period uh, when they were still filming Night Gallery there, um, and it was it was a real thrill to go around those sets and and see them as they actually mm. were. Where they they were still filming Kojak on those sets and things mm. like that, and uh, in all those kind of shows, but it. it it's the same frontages mm. that you will see in the 1930s or 1940s Universal movie, just redressed every time they needed to redo it. Um, and you get some really good views in this one. It's, a, it's actually one of the rare occasions. We, you know, we, we've seen uh, the Psycho House in another episode. 
but this actually shows you what Universal used to look like. And right up till, I, I guess, the mid-70s or even the late 70s before the studio started to redevelop the land and sell things off. It's still there, and it's still there as a studio tour to this day. I, I did it in 2019, and it's still fun to do the studio tour. But it's not like it was back then when it was a working studio, and that, and that was the thrill of, do, of seeing it. And again, what I love about Night Gallery is not just the casting of these old actors and, and, these, and these classical people. It's bringing things back like mm. the Psycho House or the Frankenstein Arch. Um, it, it's, it's almost saying, look, we're doing this, but we're paying tribute to that mm. old universal, that universal that existed 20, 30 years ago. Um, and, I, and again, I put it down to Jack Laird more than I yeah. would Rod Serling. We're, uh, we're about to get Milton Parsons, one of our favourite. Uh, not a Universal old, actor, interestingly no, he, enough. I think he'd done a couple of Universal. Yeah, but not, but he was not most, as... A, no. He's not really known as one of the Universal horror actors. No, but he, he was a regular in every creepy mystery made in the 1940s, well, it, isn't it's, it? It's, he played more undertakers and coroners and butlers than anybody else. He was else. amazing. I mean, yeah. absolutely an amazing actor. Yeah. And uh, again, somebody decided we're going to have him. Now, this is great because the actual story talks about the green-tinted world. Yeah. So that's actually in the original story. Those are the steps from Ghost of Frankenstein. Yes, no, I remember. There's very, so very it's a very obvious you know, set there. Yeah. Um, the director here is uh, John Badham, another yeah. young guy just starting out. British director, British-born director yeah. anyway. Who, um, obviously, we, we know him from Dracula and Saturday Night Fever. Um, oh, and Blue Thunder. Blue Thunder. Me, <laughs> yeah, my yeah. favourite John Banner movie ever. Um, but he, before that, he did a run of really interesting, cool um, TV projects. There's, there's yeah, Milton there's Parsons, Milton. who actually has probably the biggest role of his TV career <laughs> yeah. in this, because he turned up in a lot of things. I mean, he is in The Haunted Palace with yes. uh, Vincent yeah. Price and Lon Chaney yeah. Jr. But he, you know, he he was pretty much a forgotten actor. Uh, by the 70s, but he did turn up in these very small roles in things. Well, he just kept working, didn't he? He just never stopped. Um, I, probably, I, to be fair, he had a great face. Um, I think, it, you know, uh, last credit I've got for him is 1977, but uh, he did stuff like Little House on the Prairie. I bet he played an undertaker on that. I mean, it's. Like, I mean, he, yeah. his, my favourite of his, and I'm sure it's yours yeah. as well, is The Hidden Hand, which is yes, a Warner Brothers absolutely. movie from the. Yeah from the mid-40s, where he is basically the star of it, although he's yeah. not billed as the star. He, it, and he did a lot of radio where he basically stood in for Boris Karloff because his voice was very yeah. similar. Although he did work with Karloff on a couple of movies. He was mm. in Dick Tracy Meets Gruesome, mm. and he was in uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Yeah, Curtis Harrington used him in a couple of TV movies. Yeah. Cat Creature and the Dead Don't Die, where he played a coroner and an undertaker. He was the, yeah. he was the best guy for playing those things. Yeah. But Badham Light. Swart was a was then a young director who realised that Night Gallery was a show you could yeah, show a way off of on. making making your, yeah. your point that you know it it's not like um, you you were shooting yeah other shows around that, that time I mean uh, he actually worked on a show I really like a James Garner western called Nichols that ran for one series one season um, and he did stuff like the streets of San Francisco, Cannon, Owen Marshall, Kung Fu. But after that, directing this must have been, oh, great. No, we don't just have to do two shots and people in offices and yeah. car chases. Zoom into a window. Yeah. It, we, let's get some green lights out. Let's get some weird filters. Yeah. Let's, and, and also having 
having actors who don't have to act in that naturalistic register of uh, yeah universal cop shows of the nice and i love those shows i i would happily spend an evening watching <laughs> yeah of yeah the rockford files over and over and over but this looks different to those i mean in terms if you're looking at what TV programming was then? This does not look like that. Any of those? Well, they were yeah. very bland. A lot of those yeah. shows. They, you know, they they yeah. they all look the same with the Starsky and Hutches and the yeah. Banachecks and all and those I, things. He says that he um, he stole some bits from last year in Marion Bad for this, <laughs> and there, there's some weird little um, jump cuts. I, I love the the strange sort of uh, women who are running around, and and you think. Who were they? What had they done to poor to Mr. Well, Gingold? I, I, there's a lovely yeah. line. There's a was, lovely line in the in the original story, which yeah. I quote, which uh, Basil says, "All green of pallor and bearing with them the charnel stench." That's how he describes yeah. the ghouls in in this yeah. story, and and you really do get that sense yeah. that the I mean this this is hell. This is hell yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah, but. Um, Okay, I get the war profiteer and the body snatcher, but what about the women? What did they were they like washer women who prostitutes got, or yeah, something like yeah, that? What, yeah, or barmaids who turned him down. You know, I mean, it's like I'm 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 pretty suspicious of the morality of Mister Gingold. <laughs> this is Brendan know. Dillon, yeah. who's also in the Dead Don't Die with Milton yeah. Parsons. And, yeah, uh, yeah, and his last credit is, is to remake a Carnivore Souls. Oh, if you look yeah, at the way yeah. he looks, yeah, yeah. he's he's yeah. very good. And and he turned up the next year in the in the Hound of the Bass. Baskervilles, but yeah. as, as Barrymore. Um, oh yeah, yeah, the, the, the butler. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, he, yeah. you know, they, they've they've cast as well. But here's, I think, coming up now, we're going to get the, the the best stunt casting here, which is Arthur Mallet yeah. as Abel Joyce, yeah. the British-born actor from Mary Poppins and Monster yeah. Go Home and Young Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, and he's much, he's he's a much younger actor than he, than he looks here. But I think this, I mean, this mm. is Carnival of Souls to me. This yeah. is what the, the ghouls, I think that may yeah. be where they took the makeups from as yeah, well. Yeah, that's possible. If yeah. you look at it. Because they're deliberately uh, stylized. Yes, yeah. very stylized, very pantomime yeah. in this. Yeah. Um, but extremely, extremely yeah. I interesting. I like that Aubergeon Jean-Noir isn't playing it as a total caricature. Because if he did, you wouldn't care. Or victim. It wouldn't He's be not playing it as a victim all the time yeah. either. It, it, it's still disturbing that this this unpleasant guy has something happened to him that is punishment, but it's excessive punishment. Yes. It's but I like, think that's also is that true of a lot of horror of the nineteen? I think that's the point. Yeah, where yeah. you know it ends yeah. on a downbeat note. Oh, oh yeah. Cry the Banshee yeah. and those kind yeah. of films, where you yeah. think, oh, they've got away with it, and they have. He's bad, but he's not. He that doesn't deserve bad. this. He doesn't yeah. deserve. To, to live in hell yeah. forever. And you do get the sense that Mr. Gingold is enjoying it a bit too much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but. but again, as always with these with these episodes, all the roles are cast, you know, yeah. impeccably. They've, they've gone out their way to make it just, you know, they don't need to go this far, mm. but they do. And, and it, yeah. it really works well. And yeah, there's a certain um, voyeurism in, in, yeah. in watching him suffer, shall we say. Yeah, who do we think Gingold's going to go after next? Like mm. the gas man, or, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> Jehovah's I mean, Witnesses. We would love to have seen a sequel to this yeah. at some point. It would have been yeah. interesting. Um, I'm surprised Basil didn't write uh, a follow-up because it was one of his it's most one of his key stories. stories. Absolutely, It's yeah. still the title story of most yeah, you know, best of collections, isn't it? Uh, it's it's uh, the story. He's praised the print stories, but he's best known for, to be honest. Yeah, did and he's did been he, anthologized many, many did times. Did he ever come to resent the fact that something so early 
was the no, one. No, not that, at all. I mean, in fact, because he sad didn't thing, seem like that kind of a writer from my memory of him. No, the sad yeah. thing is that he, like Gary, put a second story for him, um, mm. Doctor Porthos, which is one of his vampire stories, and uh, they were going to do it, mm. and it was all set, and at the last minute, um, they 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 pulled back and decided not to do it, um, and he, he was very sad about that. Um, mm. he, he said he said to me. Um, uh, that I was successful and proved was proved when Universal Pictures selected the story as one of my tales to be filmed in their famous Night Gallery series, um, and he was genuinely proud that, mm. that Night Gallery had done this. And he didn't. He also write um, a TV adaptation of M. R. James's Count Magnus, Count Magnus that, yes, that was, was never, never filmed was never as well. Made, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it, which would have been a, a contrib- contribution to. The key British anthology horror show of the 70s, A Ghost Story for Christmas. But uh, the other thing about, uh, I wish they had used his last lines on the story because he he has a great ending to his story where there went Mr. Shadwell and his colleagues, the lost and the damned, trapped for eternity, stumbling, weeping, swearing as they slipped and scrambled along the alleys and squares in their own private hell under the pale light of the stars. And that would have been a great echoing voiceover at the end. Unlike the Twilight Zone, and probably to dis- differentiate itself from the Twilight Zone, we don't have Rod Serling coming no, back. No, but we had it with although we, here we, call, yeah, we had it with Cool Air yeah. with a character True. doing yep, it, that's and, right, but that and was, I think that would have made a lovely coda. This is a, a great painting for a terrible story. Yeah, um, yeah, I, it's not even a story. It's, it's not even a joke. I mean, that's joke, the thing. Yeah. Is a lot of these Jack Laird things are jokes. He's got a comedian, stand-up comedian, Marty Allen. I think that's a stock shot from Roger Corman. Isn't it? It's yeah. from The Raven, which I think yeah. is quite funny that they've taken yeah. a stock shot from The Raven yeah. and other films yeah. and stuck it in this. Uh, Marty Allen is, is quite a, a corpulent... Yeah, uh, he's the fattest Edgar uh, Allan Poe I've ever seen. I mean, yeah. Uh, but then again, maybe the idea is he's not the real Edgar Allan Poe because he signs his name <laughs> Allen Poe, which is... Which I know is a bugbear of yours Yeah, I wrote decades. a whole story called Just Like Eddie about <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe being haunted by Edgar Allan Poe, who turns up in... But the again, most... somebody should have checked this. It's like the gravestone of Dr. Muos. Yeah, Munoz. but it's like Edgar Allan Poe is listed in the most <laughs> respectable, you know, <laughs> you know author, author. But they get it yeah. right on the credits, but yes, they don't get true. it right in the show. Yeah. And of course, Mel Blanc is the voice, the voice yeah. of Bugs Bunny is what the a, voice of the Raven. Again, what a waste of a talent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, directed by Jeff Corey. Um, yeah, well, another waste of a great talent. Yeah, great, you know, actor, uh, yeah. actor, director. Apparently it took two and a half hours to do and Jeff Corey hated it. I have no idea what Marty Allen thought he was even doing. Yeah, it, uh, it's like I've seen sketch shows that have better jokes. Well, it's like one of those Saturday Night Live sketches, sketches that yeah. has no punchline. There is no punchline yeah. to it at the end of the day, which is such a shame. Yeah. And in fact, there's there's actually the scene with Karloff in The Raven, which is better. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Oh, well. Or Vincent Price, sorry, in, yeah. in The Raven, which is better. But yeah. So there we are. Overall, though, I think one of the stronger episodes yeah, no, of the Night it, Gallery. It's great to see it again. Certainly Camera Obscura and, and Cool Air are two really good stories, two really good episodes. Yeah. Um, shame about the last one, but yeah. there we are. But it, it was over with quickly. So once again, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed our commentary. Good night.